So today is uh, Wednesday, March 10th. Just a quick couple of headlines. Uh, looks like the House uh, repassed the uh, stimulus COVID relief bill. It's going to go to Biden's desk on uh, this coming Friday. So hopefully we'll have checks coming out uh, in the coming weeks. Um, so that's good news. There's a lot of um, other economic advantages that come out of that bill as well, as far as uh, testing funding and vaccine funding, as well as some uh, funding for additional state uh, programs that they have. So hopefully we'll start seeing some real progress in the next couple of weeks and funding won't be an issue as it has been the last couple of months. Um, in other news, we have a special episode this week. So with a lot of uh, controversy surrounding uh, the nation trying to get students back in schools and um, as we kind of try to slip back to normality or a little bit, uh, we thought it would be really important to bring on an educator um, to the show to kind of give their perspective from their point of view. Um, so thankfully, due, some, due to some connections that we had, Logan was able to get uh, his friend uh, Mike Jenkins on the podcast. Uh, Mike is a music teacher now. Uh, so he's going to give us a little bit of perspective. We're going to kind of pick his brain a little bit um, to kind of see what it's like on the other side as we're kind of really used to only hearing about this from, you know, in front of TVs or, or on news shows. So thanks for coming on the show, Mike, and uh, I'll let you introduce yourself a little bit. Thank you uh, for having me. I appreciate the opportunity to, to share some time with you guys uh, this evening. Um, my name is Mike Jenkins. I am, this is my tenth, uh, ninth year uh, as a teacher. Uh, I started teaching middle school and now I teach high school band and music in Nash County public schools. Uh, I am from Nash County. I currently live in Greenville, North Carolina. I graduated from East Carolina University with my degree in music education and from the University of Kansas with my master's in school administration and was a North Carolina teaching fellow and, and very passionate about uh, music and education and leadership. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you. So we're just going to jump right into it. Um, I'm going to kind of lead off with the first question here, and then we'll do kind of a roundtable style. Mike, at any point, feel free if you, know, if you had anything additional to add you know, to these questions or anything that you may think would be beneficial to any of our listeners, whether they be young, old, or a student themselves, um, you know, by all means, pitch in. Um, but we're just going to jump right in here with, with kind of a general first question as everybody is pretty much circling the news headlines now as we look forward to students getting back in schools. What is, on, at least from your perspective of as, as a teacher, um, what's your perspective on students returning to in person um, and how specifically North Carolina created the conditions to create confidence and do that successfully? In my personal opinion, I don't believe that uh, the state itself has, has done a great job of creating conditions for us to return. And so today, just today, actually, the General Assembly passed Senate Bill 220, which kind of requires districts to reopen. And so uh, there's been a little bit of uh, frustration there because uh, local districts have uh, had those decisions. And with local districts having those decisions, we actually have most districts offering some sort of face-to-face -face instruction. And so there's a lot of back and forth, and I really think it's miscommunication. It's pretty irresponsible to, to go around and say that, that schools are closed um, because schools are not closed. And so what this particular bill does, after the governor signs it, districts have 21 days to start ensuring that they offer some sort of plan A or plan B face-to-face uh, -face instruction. 
plan A for elementary schools and then middle and high schools have the option of doing plan A or plan B. Um, for me in Nash County, we opened uh, for face-to-face -face instruction last week in the hybrid plan. Um, so I've been able to see both tracks of students and, and see how it's gone. And for me in my situation, it's been slightly frustrating because uh, the sense of urgency around reopening the schools, um, a lot of the students that you would think should be back, the ones that have kind of struggled online, internet issues, you know, social, emotional, we have probably less or right at 500 students uh, between both tracks and a 1200 person school. And so not even half of our students returned back. I'm, I'm not entirely sure how effective the hybrid model has been. So for me personally, I think we need to either come back or stay home, but I also understand the reason why the hybrid exists, social distancing requirements, you can't have your, your building full to capacity. So I do understand, but it, it does present a frustrating situation for teachers because you have 18 students. For me, uh, in one track, I have 18 students online and one sitting in the room um, and being able to, to give all both. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a struggle. So what right are now we're all kind of dealing with it. As a follow up to that, what are some things um, that you think that the state could be doing better or that they're maybe not doing at all, um, whether it's things that you're seeing in other states that are being done or basically if you were saying like if somebody came to you or the governor came to you and said you know step one will be the most important thing or, or you know two or three things that you would like to see in order to get face-to-face -face instruction back to you know where it was before what's some things that you think the state could be doing better well i i do think it was kind of a late call um moving the teachers up uh i appreciate that teachers got moved up in the vaccination stage but I, I think that's something that teachers really wanted. Um, so I received my first shot uh, a couple weeks ago, get my second one on the 26th. But um, I think that's something that a lot of teachers really wanted. Uh, they wanted to be fully vaccinated first. And so as we all know, it's great to get your first shot, but you're not fully vaccinated until you get both. Um, so I think that's one thing that a lot of people, including myself, kind of wanted to see and was kind of hopeful for that we would have the opportunity to be fully vaccinated before bringing the students back. Even though I do understand the CDC says that we don't need to be, I think that's something that, that was pretty frustrating for some teachers. And the inconsistency. I know school boards would meet, mine met two or three times and had initial dates to bring students back and it got pushed back and got pushed back. And so you're, you're trying to prepare and then it changes. You're trying to prepare and then it changes. Um, so I think there's just been a little bit of frustration because of inconsistency. You've got some districts like mine, like I said, we just moved to plan B last week. You have some that have been operating in plan B since August. So I think inconsist inconsistency across the state has led to a lot of frustration. And then you hear one thing coming from Washington, some coming from Raleigh, something coming from your local school board office. And no one seems to really be focused on uh, the teachers. So there's a lot of community driven frustration uh, making decisions. In my field where I work in banking, it's kind of a 50-50 split, but I would hope that with working in the education field, it would be a little bit higher. From your personal experience with your coworkers, uh, what type of pushback, if any, have you seen against getting vaccinations? If there's any rise of misinformation, 
among the ranks of teachers, you know, in North Carolina or any type of, of doubt at all. I, I know uh, Nash County is not a big urban county by any means. Um, so it's fairly rural. Um, I work in the city of Rocky Mount. And so we, we do have, I wouldn't say it's 50-50, but uh, there, there are several of my coworkers who say very publicly, they have no intention of getting vaccinated. They don't want it. They don't need it. They don't care about it. And then we have right many who, as soon as it was made available, hopped right in line. So, so there's not been a push to force us to. Nobody's even suggested making us or anything like that. So it hasn't really been an issue as far as the ones who want to and the ones who haven't. But for me and, and what I feel comfortable doing, um, I, I went ahead and, and got it done. Do you, do you see any type of hypocrisy there, like with people saying that they don't want to get vaccinated, but that they also have an issue with students returning at the same time? Have you seen any type of that overlapping? I haven't seen that. I haven't seen, I don't want to get vaccinated, but I don't want them to come back. Right. It's, it seems to be kind of like a, a lack of care of all of it. I don't care if they come back. I don't want to get vaccinated. I, the only reason I wear my mask is because that is required. Right. Um, so we, we do get a lot of that, uh, but I haven't, I haven't seen that. I guess the first thing is uh, I just found out I'm getting my first dose. I got moved up to that group three. So I'm getting my shot Friday. Congrats. Right. So, so my first question is a surprise. It's for Jordan. Have you gotten your vaccine info yet? Yeah, I actually got my first dose on Friday because I was in this new group. Well, the in, deemed an essential worker, but in group B because I am a teacher at the college level. But yeah, I was able to get mine and then I get my second one, I think on the 21st. Awesome. Garrison, do they... Uh, do uh, they banking lives matter, tomorrow? everybody. I just want you to know. <laughs> I will probably see you in May. You're canceled. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's right. I'm hopeful that maybe like I can get just before, like maybe they open it up to like 21 and below by saying like, Hey, like I, I work in banking, although the traffic in my branch isn't that heavy, but the fact that I do have to deal with face to face and I do live in Florida where people don't believe this is even happening in the first place. So Yikes. I'm hoping maybe I can slide in there a little bit early. So staying hopeful for now. So. Good stuff. Good stuff. Garrison, you mentioned the stimulus bill. Uh, I guess stimulus law is it called a law? What's what's it called? I think there uh, was there was some legal there was some legal things in there that changed some tax implications. So it might be a law. Yeah, not been signed yet. So. Uh, socialism, yeah, socialism <laughs> law. True, true, true. Socialism Mr. law. Yeah, Mr. Biden hasn't signed it yet. But uh, <laughs> one of the big conversations with that was funding for education. I was just curious, Mike, if you could tell our audience or us a little bit about like what, what's going on with that? Why, why do we need more money for education and what's this bill doing? Are there any plans in North Carolina to get more for education? So for, for us, we received a pack of like a five pack of masks, a bottle, like a spray bottle of some type of solution <laughs> and a pack of paper towels. So that is what I received uh, as a teacher. Um, <laughs> so our school received one of those walkthrough um, temperature scanner things. That's at the front of the building. But each teacher received a five pack of masks, a bottle of some type of solution, and a pack of paper towels. So as far as funding goes, 
more socialism. Um, <laughs> so, uh, and they changed the solution recently. So we had to turn in our bottle so they could. This is really read. sketch. <laughs> so um, uh, th there's certainly probably some, some, some things that can be done with, with funding. Um, and I'm a band teacher, so, so there's some extra precautions that, that we have to take. And so uh, I, I am fortunate that, that our uh, school district has, has supported us fairly well. So um, things like instrument covers and things like that, uh, our district uh, will be providing those things for us as well. And so one of the things that's been talked about in the news is ventilation. Uh, you've heard a lot about ventilation. Um, and so that's gonna be really expensive. And so at least in my, I would think that that would be really expensive. And so that's something that I know uh, some districts, some schools uh, really want, really need. Um, and some people say that's gonna be a key factor into getting uh, full students, you know, all the students back in full time. Um, what's the timeline on something like that? How many schools are you gonna be looking at older schools that might've already had, you know, bad ventilation or something like that? I don't know what the process for that would be, but I know that's one area like actual staffing concerns, you know, local funding does pay for some faculty, some staff. And so being able to use uh, whatever CARES money is left and whatever's going to come from uh, the, the bill just passed today was the American Relief uh, Act, I think is the actual name of it, rescue. And so whatever comes from that, part of the issue with that is that it gave a bunch of money when there's still CARES money left. And so one of the issues with the money in the bill passed today is that a lot of it is reserved for future use. Like we won't have access to a large portion. I can't remember the exact amount, um, but there's a large portion that won't be available to schools until 2022, 2023. And so I don't know what the actual implication of that is, but uh, not to share, not just to spew my brainstorming with your listeners, but I would imagine the idea is it is going to take a while uh, to get a lot of this stuff done. And these schools will need money in the future as well. Um, and so that's what I'm, I'm hoping, that's what I'm thinking the idea is there. Um, but there was some concerns about this large amount of money not being able to have access to it. Um, but I do think that's because there is still a fair amount of CARES money out there to be used currently right now. So you mentioned, you mentioned the, the future. And I guess one, one question I have is just about past events. Jordan is an educator on here at the university level. And um, we've talked about, you know, how did the events of this summer impact her classroom? Um, talking specifically about what happened with Black Lives Matter and the growing awareness of what it means to be an activist and to be, you know, not just non-racist, but anti-racist. And uh, one question I think especially interesting to us and, and to our listeners is how has that uh, impacted your classroom? How have you adapted your curriculum to the growing awareness of these things? Significantly. So I, I come from what I always thought of as a really good band program. And we played a lot of really good music. We traveled a lot. We did a lot of great things. And so one of the things that I realized 
as a result of the, the summer, you know, the Black Lives Matter protests is that I have not done a great job of taking my students through new music, new composers, you know, trying to play the, the standards, the masterworks, you know, all the stuff that, you know, those things that have stood the test of time. But there are a lot of composers of color um, and other diverse populations that we just had not explored. And so I chose to not try to play instruments virtually with my students. So I've kind of transformed my entire curriculum into a uh, music appreciation, general music uh, type structure, but not the boring stuff that you did in middle school with your you know, band teacher who didn't really want to teach that class, um, but really trying to make it enjoyable and something that we can all learn from. And so that's something that, that we have been doing. So, you know, whether it's Black History Month, whether it's Women's History Month here in March, just really taking time to explore these different opportunities to go through the list of women band composers, the list of uh, Black and Brown band composers, getting out of band a little bit, choral, orchestra, it's a music class, we can do that. Um, and those are just things that I just had not done. And I think I just kind of took for granted uh, the fact that I do teach in a majority minority uh, population uh, district and school and just kind of took for granted that I am a person of color. And so, but I, 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 that's part of my reflection on my teaching practices. And so now the trick for me is continuing to do those things when we are able to get back into like an ensemble setting, when we're preparing for concerts and we have all this other stuff going on, still doing that. Because it's been a learning, it's been a teaching moment for me. Um, and so that is how I thought I could be a part of that movement is by exposing my students uh, to this, you know, just wide array, this wide variety of diversity. Yeah, I mean, you, it's good that you've been able to learn from it. And I, I guess I should point out, like you said, there's an obvious silliness to me as a white person asking you about uh, how you adapted your curriculum to BLM. Um, <laughs> so I just, I do want to just name that. And, uh, you know, I, I, I'd be curious to hear Garrison and Jordan too. Like I only had one black teacher before grad school and that was a professor. And so I, I don't know, what was y'all's experience with that? And, um, and especially, you know, what was your experience for you two with, with learning about uh, Black perspectives, uh, especially in that history setting, I think, where it matters a lot? I grew up in Fayetteville, North Carolina, which is a, you know, we're like 45% Black, just primarily because of the military base. I had, through K through 12, let me make sure I have this right, I had one Black teacher. Um, and then in higher ed, I had, also make sure this is correct, one black teacher, my very last semester of law school, who was a visiting professor. Uh, and he taught uh, the legal history of the civil rights movement. And he was probably one of the best professors I've ever had. And then the university didn't hire him. So I think it's really frustrating for me because I, you know, I, I grew up in Fayetteville. I went to UNC Pembroke, a minority majority institution. And then I went to, I mean, UVA is not, uh, I would not say a bedrock of diversity, but 
I, I like I didn't I, you know especially over the summer with all the BLM I, I really started thinking about the lack of black teachers I mean definitely in K through 12 because again I grew up in an area that in theory should have been more diverse and still didn't have those teachers and there were black and then there were black teachers in my school like there, it wasn't that they weren't there I just never I personally did not have them but particularly in higher ed, I, it was just very disappointing that, you know, I went, I mean, Pembroke didn't even have a, like, African-American history class, courses that were taught. Uh, there was an intro class, and then that was it. Uh, and they later added it after I graduated, but that wasn't there at a school that has, you know, 35% of its students are Black. Like, I just thought that's just crazy. And then I went to one of the best law schools in the, in the country that has the money uh, and has a sizable enough endowment to, to pay for black teachers. You know, they can get the best of the best. They have the, the funds available that maybe Pembroke does not to pay those, those top teachers and to, to get diverse teachers and still didn't have it. <laughs> like, and it's just, and when I left, there was, there's been a, there was a huge mass exodus of black uh, professors at UVA law. When I left, there were three on the entire faculty, which is like appalling for a, you know, top tier university, that, that's shameful. So I think, I, I don't know, I, I was something I hadn't really thought about really, I, really until the summer is when I really put some thought into how many black teachers and professors that I had. And it is really disappointing to have that. And then it's also like, as I think at Pembroke now, I'm like, wow, I might be the only black teacher that my students have, like, and that's, I don't know. It's like very, it's like good in some ways. It's like, okay, they're getting a black teacher, but also like very demoralizing that like, you just, if you happen to take me, like if you happen to take my intro class, right. you might have a black professor. Like that's, I don't know. It's very, I don't know, it, particularly like we're in the South, like it should, it, there, there should be more black teachers and black professors. And it's very, you know, demoralizing to see that that's not the case. And obviously there are a multitude of reasons for that, particularly with higher ed, just because there's so many barriers to, to black professors getting into, into teaching. Um, but yeah, it's something that I think really needs to be addressed because I, it, it's, it is so awesome when you have a teacher or a professor that looks like you or comes from a similar background to you, it really is empowering. And so when you don't have that, you really are missing out on something really, really special. Yeah. So I would probably say my experience as far as before college was pretty similar off the top of my head. I want to say that I maybe had two or three black teachers in high school, um, not meaning that they were the only ones there, um, kind of as, as Jordan allotted to there. I just didn't have a class with them, but by no means was it a significant you know, portion of the, of the teacher population in, in my high school. Um, it's actually really never occurred to me the lack of diversity at Pembroke um, until we kind of last couple of years until we kind of really started to focus on that as, as alumni. I honestly can't think of one off the top of my head, a, a class that I took at Pembroke. Um, obviously, the political science department doesn't have one, so that has a lot to do with it. But honestly, I can't think of one, even um, my gen eds uh, that I had on there. I am thankful for that uh, ROTC kid. I was a nerdy ROTC kid in high school, and the upper level instructor was a retired lieutenant colonel, um, and he was black. And he did a lot to kind of form my early understanding of leadership and, and human skills and relations. And he showed a lot of patience and constraint with me. And I would say that he was probably one of the first people in a leadership position that knew how to balance my immaturity with the potential that I showed. So I think one thing that, that I've been thankful to thankful for um, is not only growing up 
did I have black friends and, and, you know, hung around in, in black social groups and things like that. So I had that exposure, but also that I had periodically, even through elementary school, when I was a troubled child in elementary school, it was a, uh, a black guidance counselor that I went to. And that woman, I owe so much to that woman for keeping my ass out of hot water, um, you know, with school administration when I was going through like behavioral issues and stuff like that. Um, but I think I've just been really beneficial to have, thankfully, that exposure, especially now that in a society that we see when you don't have that exposure, what type of cost that privilege comes with when you try to act like these issues don't exist in these communities. So I may be, I maybe had a little bit more exposure than the average person, but uh, by no means am I justifying, you know, that the level that I was exposed to was enough. So, yeah, I mean, that, that all seems pretty congruent. I don't know. It's one of those things I think everyone's thinking about more after this summer and, and not just, you know, having black teachers, uh, but, you know, like you said, Mike, like making those curriculum adjustments, figuring out ways to communicate to every student, the masterworks in music or like the classics for me in philosophy, like it's all good stuff and it's important. I, I'm not denying that, but, um, you know, there's more too. It can be a, an and option. So it's cool you've been able to, to capture some of that. I want to just put out a, like a point of like focus here that to show you how important it is to have black teachers, like even though we went to a minority majority school in Pembroke, racism was still well and alive on that campus and is to this day. So, I mean, that just goes to show you that even in these like untraditional environments that you would think have good minority exposure, it's still extremely important to make sure you have that diverse staff that can relate to that much of a diverse student body. So, yeah, and at Pembroke, it's not just faculty, it's all levels of that university. There's a very stark apparent lack of diversity, particularly with Black employees. Um, and again, you know, 35, it's like 33, 35% of the student population is Black. Like, I don't know, they might, I don't know, I think when we were a student, I, I don't know which group had like the highest representation, but I think now it, it might actually be Black students, which is great in many ways. And I think Pembroke has a lot of benefits of being so diverse, but it, it's, it's really only diverse in student body only. Um, I saw a current student posted on Facebook uh, about Pembroke saying that they, they now have noted, know that there's a difference between diversity and, and inclusion and uh, wishing that they may, might, wish they had known that difference before maybe they chose their institution, higher ed institution. So, all right, but let's pivot a little bit. I, before I, we leave the, you know, talking about the pandemic and COVID, I just have a question that kind of came to mind as we're talking about particularly vaccinations. Cause I don't think we talk about this a lot and I think there are good reasons for it, but I guess when it comes to students being vaccinated, um, obviously, I mean, like there have been studies that show that, you know, particularly young kids, like little kids, you know, K through six or whatever, you know, they don't, the virus doesn't transmit as, you know, they don't have, they either uh, don't have really bad symptoms or just the transmission rate is lower. Um, but obviously, you know, high school students are pretty much adults and then middle school, we have kind of that weird in between. But I, when we're talking about school openings, I haven't really seen anything about, you know, getting the kids vaccinated or, you know, should, or should we just vaccinate high schoolers and leave, you know, the elementary school kids or what? But I just kind of wanted to get your opinion about student vaccinations and kind of, is that something that the state should be focusing on right now? Or, you know, are they kind of, is them kicking that down the road a little bit? Is that the right thing to do? I'm not sure. 
one of my concerns was uh, as I as I tuned into uh, some of our school board meetings, they seemed to justify bringing middle and high school students back to campus based on the success, I use that term loosely, the success that they had bringing elementary school students back when they did it in October. And one of, one of my frustrations with that argument is kind of what you just said. You know, data shows that the, the smaller students are less uh, susceptible to the virus. And so you, you can have them there uh, with the minimal distance, with masks on and, and you know, all that good stuff. But high school students, these students work. They generally do not follow rules. And so you know they're out and about in town, not you know wearing their masks like they're supposed to, unless maybe they're with their family or something like that. But if they're on their own, they work. And, and these are high schoolers. So what kind of jobs do they have? the high touch type jobs, department stores, fast food, things like that. Um, they play sports. And so they're, they're around these other groups of people that they don't live with. And so part of our back to school plan was, you know, if you're carpooling uh, to school, you know, with people who don't uh, live in your house, make sure you wear your mask uh, in your car. You know, I don't believe that they're actually going to do that. And so, you know, my concern was, you know, kind of the transient nature of being a high school student versus elementary school students, you're seven, you come to school, you go home, that's all you do. And so do I think they need to be vaccinated? I don't think it's necessary in this plan B because um, like I said, it's only half of the population. It's, it's so much room to move around in the school. And so with masks on and, and really enforcing uh, the distancing and things like that. I, I do think that would be fine. Um, I, I don't think it necessarily should be a priority right now. Um, but if we want to discuss full on plan A, all 1200 kids back in the building, if we're going to eliminate a mask requirement down the road, we may need to have that conversation. Um, but right now, in the, in the hybrid plan, I, I'm not entirely sure that that's necessary uh, only because it seems to be effective with half the kids in the building at one time. No, I, that's, I'm glad to get some perspective on that because I think I just haven't heard anything about that as especially as we I see haven't. counties like, oh, it's time to get back in person. It's time to get back in person. And he, he, you'll even hear, oh, well, vac vaccinations are ramping up. It's time to get back in person. I'm like, well, are we vaccinating the students? And you know, even at Pembroke, like we have vaccination uh, drives now on campus, but they're still only for professors. And I'm like, I mean, I know what I'm doing. I don't trust these kids. Like I would right. rather them get vaccinated than me for, you know, if we were to go in order, I'd rather have the students get vaccinated than me. Cause they're the ones Especially are, at the college level. Cause yeah. they, they go home, they, you know, they probably don't live, you know. They might be uh, worse than the high schoolers. <laughs> they might yeah. be worse than the high schoolers. Um, that, that was one of my concerns as well. Uh, living in one county and working in another county, my, my own travel uh, back and forth, because um, Pitt County is doing things very differently than, than Nash. And I just saw this today. Uh, I think it's Alaska is offering vaccinations to 16-year-olds, uh, 16 and up. 
I don't know if that's specifically geared towards getting students vaccinated for a return or if it's just a statewide, hey, let's just open it up. Um, but that's the first time that I've seen anything geared at a school age. Yeah, and I know <clears throat> that there's not as much, um, you know, testing with the vaccines for kids. And I, so I kind of get that, but I think for high schoolers, particularly 16 and up, and then, because those are the ones that are working and then definitely college students. I just, you know, we don't, there's this rush. I mean, we're in person at Pembroke and there was this whole rush to get everybody back in the classroom, but like, we're right. not vaccinating like the people <laughs> that are the ones moving classroom to classroom or living in the dorms or, you know, coming commuting to and from campus and they're going home to their, whatever County they're from every weekend. So. Yeah. And, and to your, to your question, I, I hadn't, I have not heard any discussion, even any discussion about it. Okay, well, I'm going to pivot a little bit because I can't, we can't have an educator on the pod without, you know, talking about charter schools. Because, you know, we, this is, you know, this is a political pod. So we have to talk a little bit about a hot topic, um, like charter schools. So I was wondering if you could kind of just talk a little bit about uh, your thoughts on charter schools, what benefits they may or may not bring to a community or to a certain community. Overall, I, I think I'm just interested in your overall opinion on you know, the, how good charter schools are for a community. In, in kind of its most simplistic form, a charter school is an independent public school. Most of them are independent public schools. And so they, like we have one in our county. Um, it is not, uh, decisions are not made by our Nash County School Board. Um, they have their own board of directors and they operate off of an actual charter granted to them by the state. And so um, they have their own board of trustees. Um, they, they have their own, uh, they can negotiate salary separately from uh, the public school district. And so there's a lot of independency with how they can do their scheduling and all of that stuff. And so, but it is the one that I'm speaking of is a public school. Like there's no uh, tuition or anything like that to attend it. Not all, but most charter schools are uh, tuition-free independent public schools. My personal opinion on them is I personally don't care for them like at all. And, and that's only because I have not seen any clear indicators in my area of their effectiveness. And so to me, it's just something that's drawing money away from the traditional school district. You see in like big urban cities, Boston, New York City, um, where they seem to operate well, um, just as other options. But here in like rural areas, we have not seen uh, or I haven't seen rather, and there have been studies, there's data uh, that does not necessarily show this extreme or, or even uh, noticeable effectiveness better than the traditional public school district. I, I don't like how, you know, a, a charter school can just close. You can just mismanagement, oh, we're out of money and just closes. And, and so um, there, there, there are some uh, accountability issues, in my opinion, uh, with, with charter schools. They do not have the same testing accountabilities. Uh, and that's a different conversation. Um, but they don't have the same testing accountability. 
they don't have the same uh, financial accountability as the traditional public schools. And some of them uh, tend to get themselves in trouble because of that. And then what happens to those students? They filter back into the traditional public school. What would you, where, did, where would you say these came from? I mean, what led to the, to the rise of these or, or their popularity? Um, you know, whether that's strictly North Carolina or, you know, kind of the theme around the nation. No, I, I definitely think it's, it's a theme around the nation. Um, and, and I think it's, I think it is, there is a sincere desire for parents, and, and I am not a parent, but there is a sincerity around wanting the best educational option for your child. And so where it becomes a smokescreen is when the government and the politicians get in front of the camera and talk about school or, or parent choice in, in, in schools, in education. Um, so there, there's a sincerity around parents wanting another option. And, and some of this, uh, Logan and I have had a, a brief conversation about the fact that most public schools are funded via property taxes. And so if you live in an area that is, you know, low on the socioeconomic scale, um, your school attendance zone, the school that your child will be going to, probably isn't properly funded. Um, you probably don't have all the staff, not, not teachers, the staff uh, that the school needs, um, support staff, uh, uh, adequate number of counselors, uh, behavioral specialists, psychologists, things like that. Even schools that are decently funded don't have all of those things. Uh, a full-time nurse that doesn't, isn't split between two and three schools. I don't know about y'all, but I, I remember the nurse is only here on Tuesdays and Thursdays. Right. And so, and, and that's something in this COVID era that we're in will be problematic uh, moving forward. But so I, I think kind of the rise or, or the need or the desire for another option that is still supported by the state, that doesn't really make sense to somebody like me. Uh, who thinks, okay, well, just make the public school better, you know, and you can't throw money at every problem. I, I, I do understand, you know, that line of thinking, and I agree with that line of thinking. And so there, there is some mismanagement, and, and there are some people that think you can just give the districts more money and hope that they do things the right way. That's not necessarily how that always works. Um, but I do think the more charters that are granted, the more vouchers for private schools, which is a different conversation as well, um, we continue, the more we have those things, the more we will continue to talk about how bad the traditional public schools are operating and we'll continue to have more grants for charters and more vouchers for private schools. I think we're on a, a, a spiral right now and it's not good for the traditional public schools. And that's kind of, that's, I think that's where most of us kind of stand. And I know my stance on the argument is generally that when, well, I mean, a lot of people like to make this argument about wealthy families and wealthy children versus, you know, the middle class and, and low income families and children. And I feel like I quickly learned that when it's, it's a tough, it's a tough situation. It's, it's like walking a tightrope because like you said, you, you want to side with the parent that's doing and exploring all their resources to get their child the best education they can. But at the same time, you can't tell me that 
by removing these children that have these powerful and, and wealthy individuals as parents that they then no longer have to worry about the status of their public school in that area. And so it ends up becoming, you know, fundamentally destructive. And again, it's kind of a theme of our country, you know, over the last couple of decades, few are prospering while the masses suffer is kind of what it comes down to. So is that kind of where you relatively stand on it? Is, is that kind of what makes sense? Is it, or is it a, is it a realistic perspective to have um, kind of where you hit on to, to so they'll continue to slide down? Or I guess more so the question is, what type of student do you see that attends these charter schools? Do you kind of see it as it looks like these people at a, at a higher socioeconomic level are the ones that are putting their children into these charter schools? Or do you kind of see a general mix? For specifically the, the charter school uh, in my county, it is not the high-end population. Um, they are not the ones going there. And so it, it is an interesting situation because I, I agree with what you're saying, um, but the kind of the, the specific example that I have access to um, doesn't align with that. And so I, I do think that it's a, a matter of, for us as private schools, we have a couple of private schools in, in Rocky Mountain as well. And that's kind of where the, the high end people go. And we also, my high school where I work uh, offers the IB program as well. And so uh, we actually have, to me, uh, some of that upper middle class population that, that does go to our school. And they're a part of that program, generally speaking. But as far as the charter school, it is that I see, it, it does tend to be middle lower middle class, lower on the socioeconomic scale, because it can offer that smaller class size and, and that more one-on-one uh, -on -one learning opportunities uh, that the public school can't offer when you have 35 10-year-olds or 35 15-year-olds in one class. And so I see a lot of people choosing charter schools because of the smaller environment or what is presented as, you know, a smaller environment, uh, a better learning environment because of the smaller class sizes and things like that. Doesn't always turn out to be that way. Yeah. I mean, what you just said reminds me of how you were framing it. All parents want what is best for their child. These charter schools are promising a way to make that happen. And in your case, like, for kids who are from lower class or middle class families. And like, yes, you may get smaller classes, et cetera, but we also lose that accountability piece like you talked to. And it just, to me, I think the depressing thing about charter schools is that if you're poor or middle class, this may be your only way, but it's such a risk. The school risk. closes, there's no testing. You don't know who these folks are who are getting hired. Like, it sucks that people in lowering economic situations like have to take that gamble because they want what's best for their kid. And that that's just really depressing to me, especially considering those are public funds and they could just be put into the public schools. And, and, and just for the listeners, I guess uh, my, I guess my insight to this is my, my younger sister attended that charter school that I'm talking about. Um, and so uh, kind of some some direct knowledge there. I, I was not a fan of her going there. Again, you know, I went to regular public school. And so, uh, and she started, she went uh, to regular, like regular, 
um, a traditional elementary school and then went to the charter school from sixth grade till when she graduated. And she liked it, but she, my sister's completely different than me. Um, I'm, I'm fairly a, a people person, she is not. And so she, she was able to do okay in that smaller environment. Um, she didn't need the extracurricular activities um, and things like that. So she, she did okay there. And so, but that was uh, an option. My, my, it was a transportation issue as well. Um, so that particular charter school did offer bus transport. A lot of, some charter schools do not. So that's another barrier for, for some people as well. What I was, I was actually in the IB program at my high school here. So I think that is, and that's a whole other conversation, but to talk about magnet programs in high schools and like how that makes like schools within schools. Mm-hmm. I started high school, my first two years of high school, I was in Georgia my family's military and all of the high schools were all magnet like they had regular school and mag- but every single high school had a magnet program and so like n- almost no one went to school in their actual assigned district unless you know like anyone that was you know it, like everyone's all over the place like you know I went to out of district and everyone was going out of district and that, that I always think about how interesting of a dynamic that is but magnet schools are a whole other conversation um, but my husband, um, he's from Arizona before he joined the military. He actually was a teacher in a magnet school at, a element, at the elementary school level. And same, similar to the magnet school or to the charter school in Nash County, it was, you know, it was a lower socioeconomic charter school. Um, primary, most of his students were uh, Hispanic. And he just, I, I always like pick his brain about it because I'm very like, just send the kids to regular school, but like regular public school. But in Arizona, Arizona is one of the states that has like the highest number of charter schools. He's just, and he kind of is saying like the benefits that you guys have kind of pointed out that, you know, these parents want to put them their kids in as close to private school as they can, but they can't really right. afford to send their kids to private school. So this is kind of gives the private school illusion without, without the cost. Um, and I think at an individual level, like I, I can't fault parents for doing that. I mean, obviously, I, I mean, I'm not a parent, but you want what's best for your kid. And sometimes like what's best for your kid isn't necessarily what's best for the community as a whole. So we run into a lot of, (laughs) (laughs) we just run into like a huge collective action problem, but it, but so I I can understand it, but I mean, it's, I kind of am very skeptical of charter schools and because I just see it as a, you know, we got private schools as a response to desegregation. Um, that's when, you know, all these schools didn't want to desegregate. So they created private schools. So then we got a bunch of private schools and then there were complaints about, well, you know, my kid, I can't afford to send my kid to a private school. So, you know, I want a comparable option, which I think is a valid concern. And so that, and in turn, we get charter schools to give. So A, to allow the private schools to still stay private and elite and white and all of that. And so we'll give out a couple of vouchers to some brown kids that'll allow them to go to the private school so that on paper, it's not segregated and we'll make some charter schools so that you know these kids can kind of go to private school but then we're not going to make them accountable we're not going to have any of those precautions or safety measures in place that we do at regular public schools um so i just i'm I'm very skeptical it's just a a whole way so that we could continue to have segregated private schools race playing a role in what school students go to what What? oh my god (laughs) I think that was an interesting point you made too, Jordan, like to hit on two things there. I think how you said how they were kind of birthed out of 
creating a middle ground between public schools and private schools. Um, that kind of seemed like putting a Band-Aid on a problem, which for the last few decades in this country is basically been our theme. We just slap a Band-Aid on it and ignore it. It's the founding of our country. I mean, let's think, I mean, the three-fifths right. compromise was sticking a Band-Aid on the slavery problem and just say, oh, we'll do, right. we'll figure that out later. So, yeah. I mean, we just love to, we just love to, to kick a can down the road. And the other part of it is kind of how these have become a, a dangerous evolution almost. Now, and I like the point that you made, uh, Mike, where you said that, uh, one part of it for your sister was the fact of transportation. Um, so, and I, and I think that kind of opens a doorway to a potentially bigger problem that obviously public, we all know public school funding is is nowhere near where it should be, um, but that maybe the overall system in general, there's not schools in locations where they should be. There's not transportation that is funded properly where it should be. And I think it's just really kind of disheartening to see this, we've created a Band-Aid and now it's almost becoming like a drainage as like this evolution where you're slowly killing public schools um, because charter schools are able by taking these little baby steps and opening a charter here and a charter there, they're able to start siphoning off of that public school reliability. So it kind of just feels like these, these charter schools are now becoming so popular and, and, and booming because they're offering what public schools can't, but it's because we're funding charter schools in the first place and not putting that into public schools that these charter schools are having to be invented. So it just kind of just seems like, excuse my language, but this just clusterfuck of miscommunication. And again, obviously I think we know, you know, going back to decades, this country has slashed education budgets, you know, by the tens and hundreds of millions. Um, and it's just really kind of, we always, we, we hate to get so depressing on the show, but we are about bringing education to the surface and, and showing, you know, kind of what the truth is and, and how these type of, you know, laws and enactments have really, you know, degraded society uh, in general. But I mean, you know, that's just kind of what it seems like to me is that ironically, these charter schools are filling the gap of what public schools can, but it's because their existence in the first place is keeping public schools down. Yeah. So we'll have to go on their depressing rants. Anybody got a high note they can end on with that? What you just described reminded me of like leech treatment in the medieval times. This is not a high note. <laughs> Stuck it out. <laughs> Stuck it out. That is not a high if note, the, no. If the doctor just like left the leech on and said, like he got the bad blood. <laughs> yeah, it's not great. Yeah. And, you know, and I'm definitely a huge advocate for the the fact that we ever made public schools based off property value in the first place. Obviously, that's a fucking racist ass law that we put to place to strategically, you know, target minorities. But Jesus Christ, why is that still a law like that? Like how I mean that on square one, I could go to my five year old nephew and say, you know, if I give you five dollars for this as compared to ten dollars for that, who do you think is going to have more books for you to read? And he could clearly tell me who's going to have more. So I, I don't know, man, it just goes to show the overall dysfunction of our education system. But I don't know if for your for a question for you, I mean, how do you hold on to hope with it? You know, as you, as you kind of battle it on the front lines that, you know, to kind of see these changes happening in real time um, or see these these kids and these students being affected in real time. Um, you know, what kind of gives you hope for the for the whole system, um, you know, to, to think that they're not ultimately failing these kids or their kids, kids eventually. It has, been, <laughs> it, it has been uh, fairly difficult this year uh, in particular to, to, to have hope. And, and I hate that I just said that because I, I enjoy what I do. Um, for, for me, and, and this is 
I don't think I could teach at one point I thought I could teach history and I do think I could teach history, but for me being able to teach the subject that I teach is, is right now the only thing that I'm like holding on to. So being able to, to have kids come in every day and talk about music, something that everybody enjoys. And so at least for a few minutes each day in a, environment that's not great. Some kids at home, some kids don't want to turn their cameras on because, you know, they're embarrassed about, you know, their, their home or whatever, you know, um, there's a lot of things going on there. So when we're in this just really uncomfortable environment, just for a few minutes each day, we can get together and, and talk about music. Um, I had a small little rehearsal after school using the, the safety requirements yesterday. And that was the first time that some students had been in the building in a year. And just being in the band room, which I create the environment of just warm, inviting atmosphere. And so just being in the band room, you could literally see an, a, a difference in them just being in that space. And so there, there's something about music uh, that just kind of brings people together. So for me, it's being able to do this and kind of use that to kind of instill, hey guys, you know, uh, use that for the uh, social emotional support and things like that. Um, as far as the profession uh, and me as a professional in general, having hope for the future, teachers, you know, being a little more vocal um, than maybe they have been uh, before. Uh, some of it's out of frustration, um, but you do have more people starting to, to, to speak up and, and voice concerns and, and voice opposition. Um, and, and so we, we saw that the bill signed in the General Assembly, or passed in the General Assembly today was a compromise. Um, and so we were, it, it looked like the General Assembly was just going to force us without, you know, allowing the governor to have any or school boards to have any type of flexibility. But uh, they did find that compromise in the bill that was passed. So the hope is, is, is just is small, but I do think it's there. Uh, kids are resilient. And so just the, just the nature of, yeah, they're struggling right now, um, but we will be back. You know, we, we will be in a position where we will have them back in our care. And so I think looking forward to that, uh, as frustrating as getting through now may be, uh, the idea that we will get back to, it may not be the old normal, and I'm okay with that. I'm okay with not going back to the old normal. Um, but being in a position where we can create um, a, a new normal, I think is kind of my hope. Uh, my fear right now is that we won't do that and that we will go back into our, our old ways of 7.30 to 2.30 in uh, 90-minute block classes. But I think we have a, a golden opportunity right now to, to give the traditional public setting a revamping that it so desperately needs. And so I'm, I'm, I'm holding on that some of these changes that have been implemented because of COVID, some of them may have a, a permanent impact. Good answer. Yeah, I like that. If, if, I, could, if I could say one more thing. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, one thing that I... I wanted to add is that there has been, and I don't know about other states, but here in North Carolina, there has been just this beat down of teachers. 
throughout this whole thing because you do have some that didn't want to go back at all until they were fully vaccinated. They don't want to go back now. Like they, you, you, you have a lot of opinions. It's a very politically diverse state. And so teachers have been working harder than they ever have, trying to serve students in their building, in the conditions that they're in, trying to serve kids at home and the, the difficulties that that comes with and, and having to do that simultaneously, you have teachers working harder than they ever have to make this thing work. And they have uh, done so probably with some frustration, but they've done so because they're committed to their jobs. They're committed to their students. And so I, I do think that it is unfair, kind of the, the just beat down they've been getting for just not wanting to do this or oh, this idea that teachers have just been at home doing nothing this whole time. Because I can tell you, like I said, we just, students just returned last week. I've been going to the building every day. Like we, we were required to go to work even though there were no students in the building. And so we've been going to the building, we've been working, we've been trying doing everything we can, getting around the internet issues, you know, redoing our curriculums. There's been a lot of work done by teachers across the state uh, this year. And so the idea that teaching wasn't taking place and that, that teachers are just being lazy, it just, it just isn't true. Is it true that maybe there's been a learning loss? Um, and I'm not entirely sure that I like that term, but has there been a learning loss? More than likely, yeah. Do I think that standardized state testing is the way to show that that learning loss exists? No. but Kids are resilient. We'll, we'll, we'll figure out. We'll, we'll figure it out. Thanks for that, Mike. I, I guess just one final thing that I'm hearing from what you said is in capitalism, we have all these terms for what someone does. There's job, career, profession. My favorite and the one that I think is the most anti-capitalist is vocation from the Latin to call. And education um, is one of those professions that is a calling. And like, when you talked about your profession, you talked about there's a lot of hopeless areas there. But when you talked about the calling, the kids, the music, um, the hope that education represents for the future in general, that really stood out to me. So I just want to say thank you for taking your time coming on today. Uh, I'm going to end with they need a fucking pay raise like yesterday. So no doubt. That too. I don't know. Did you? Have, I don't know, Mike. If you keep up with it, but has anybody got a recent update of like where we stand, one through fifty in the states, as far as like compensation or? Are we still fifty-one? Yeah. No, I know <laughs> this because my husband Ryan and I were having a big fight over if Arizona or North Carolina was lower. Uh. <laughs> um, Arizona is forty-eight. North Carolina is forty-six. Oh, God, well, that's nice. better. We were what fifty-first, like behind. <laughs> Because he was trying to say that teaching here would have been was better than Arizona, and I was like, I mean, if it is, oh. it's not. <laughs> it been like a hundred bucks. <laughs> he was like, he was like, well, they read, they did red for Ed in Arizona, and I was like, they did that here, my man. <laughs> like, Ooh, this ain't the place. If yeah. you're fun fact. Make money. Uh, fun fact: North Carolina still has not passed a new budget, and we are still being paid off of the two years ago salary oh, God. schedule. God. <laughs> and so 
Yes. Let's get that. Literally yesterday, Garrison. Yeah, yo, literally yesterday. I mean, really, like, I really hope that that's, uh, I don't know. I mean, I feel like it's brewing a little bit in the state as far as, you know, education being a hot topic. But if I was running, you know, state legislature, even at, at, you know, Congress, congressional level, um, you know, for the midterms, that would be a huge part of my campaign slogan would be like, look, dude, there's, I mean, they're still being paid off of two years ago. You think them doing stimulus payments based off your current year is bad. You know, they're not even getting compensated because you have people that can't come to an agreement that we pay them to do that. And they, they can't get their job done. And if I wasn't doing my job, I would quickly be kicked to the curb. So. It's very frustrating. Cause it's not like paying, giving teachers more money is a divisive no. issue. Like we all agree that <laughs> teachers should get paid more. And so it, right. it floors me that I'm like, why is like not just here, but everywhere. Like, why is this so difficult to get passed? Because everyone is in agreement that they need to get paid more. Like, yeah. just pay them more. Like, and I, it somehow it just you know every new politician runs on. We need to pay our teachers, or we need to support our schools, and yet we still have yet to do that. So it's really, really disappointing. But I don't say thank you, Mike. I mean, I think it's teachers. This, this, especially in the last year, I cannot imagine having to, particularly even music, like a music class. My God, like adapt that to a virtual setting. And I mean, I commend you for your flexibility and also your patience uh, when this all started. I went and stayed with my dad lives in Virginia, but I went and stayed with him for a month. And I have a uh, 12 year old and eight year old uh, little siblings and watching my little brother's teacher on zoom, try to wrangle in a bunch (laughs) of eight year olds. I immediately was like, yes, pay that woman, give her, give her a bonus, give her all the raises, like bless her, try to focus, get like focus the attention of 28 year olds in their house. Like, no, so I just, I just want to say like, you, you're doing awesome work and you know, we need, we need people like you out there teaching those kids. And I mean, I, I hope you get your pay raise whenever our freaking legislature can get their act together. When Jordan runs for office, we'll, we'll get it done for you. <laughs> there you go. That'll be our slogan. Yeah. All right. Well, um, again, Mike, I think I just want to, you know, send our, uh, our thanks again. Um, you know, maybe we'll have you on in a, in a couple months or, Maybe in the fall, if things get back to normality, we'll get a we'll get a check in vibe back from you again. Um, kind of see how things are going for you. But um, again, just you know, thank you for coming on the show and, and sharing your insight. Um, we definitely one of the themes of of this show that we wanted it to be and why we started doing it was to you know not only to educate but to get those lesser heard voices you know out in any way that we could find. So and I, and I definitely think we accomplished a lot of that today. So that that's our show for the week, everybody. I, you know, hopefully we'll get some uh, stimulus checks rolling out next week and uh, we'll be back to talk about what other hot, hot button topics are going on then. But uh, as always, if you like us, subscribe, give us a rating and we'll see you next week. Thanks.